Good morning, church. This is off center. Well, good morning. If if you haven't met me before, my name my name's Andrew, and I'd like to also welcome you to Grace Christian Church this morning. I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you uh, once more, and I want to get started right with a question for you, and and that question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Put put another way, um, what are the things in your life that you're looking forward to? What are the things that bring you happiness? And, and satisfaction. A couple of things that I thought of when, when I asked myself that question were enough money, I'm waiting to get a comfortable amount of money, waiting to get married. For others, it might be waiting to retire. For others, it might be waiting for your online shopping to come in the mail. It might be waiting for a job. Um, you might even be waiting for someone to be healed um, that you've been praying for for quite some time. So, all of us, we, we spend a lot of time in our lives waiting for things. And if, if we're constantly waiting for things, church, uh, we better make sure we're waiting for the right things. And we better make sure we're waiting for things that are in line with, with God's plan for us. And the reason I say that is God created you and, you and me. All right? And so we're going to be studying a bit more of the book of James today. And only God knows what we should be waiting for ultimately. So my, my message today doesn't really roll off the tongue. It's three Ps, plans, possessions, and patience. My message is going to be about something we don't always talk about in church. It's going to be about Jesus coming back again. And because Jesus is, is coming back again, this ought to transform the way we view our lives, the way we view how we spend money, the way we plan as we wait for him to come back again. So we have three sections of, of the book of James today, and each of them provide us a, a different glimpse of how we should wait for the Lord. So with that in mind, let's, let's pray, and um, we'll get into God's Word today. Um, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity today to, to study, to learn from your Word. Um, we adore you. We love you, Lord. Now, we want to just declare that you alone are God, and we want to confess that we are sinners, but because of your grace, we can come here this morning and hear from your word, we can worship you, and we're so grateful for that. We pray as we we open your word today, you would would remind us that indeed you are coming back again, Jesus, and Lord, I pray that this would transform our perspectives, it would convict us, and more than that, we would put something into action when we leave this place today and so we we commit ourselves to you we want to hear what you want to say this morning and help us to not make well not waste this time but to use it for your kingdom we pray in jesus name amen all right we're at point one plans and we're going to get into book of james you're really going to need a bible um if you don't have one feel free to go grab one quickly find somebody who has one um, or, or, of course, um, you can use your phones. We're going to tackle it in three sections, and we're going to start in James 4, verse 13. James 4, verse 13. It says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go 
to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if, if, this, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So we'll wrap it up for, for this section or at, the, at that passage, but we will come back to, to James later. God has a plan for, for each and every one of, of you and me, and he wants us to view everything we do in the context of his greater plans. To, uh, to put it another way, God doesn't want us to make plans independently of him. He doesn't want us to, to go about our lives and then retrofit him into what we're doing. And so the way James does this is through an example that should be familiar to many of us here. It's the example of, of a business person. This person carries on. They, they do business. Thanks, James. Yeah, okay. This person does business. They, they make money. Um, they even plan to make money in different cities um, and, and do work overseas or, or in, in different countries. And this is pretty relatable to us. Who, who doesn't relate to wanting to have a stable income, have a secure job, get some money in the bank and, and, and be comfortable? There's nothing actually fundamentally wrong with that on the surface, but it's clear that James is looking beneath the surface. There is an issue from his perspective, and we see this if we go back to the passage in verse 14. It says, Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow what is your life? He then uses this imagery of, of mist to, to convey the fact that, that wealth and reputation will, f- will fade away. Um, I couldn't find a good picture of mist, but I did find one of fog. Anyone recognize that city? Yeah, it's Sydney. Very good. Um, I'm sure a couple of you have experienced, particularly if you're doing the morning commute, uh, that Sydney can, can get quite foggy. It's pretty rare, but it does happen. And, and on those days, you can't even see five, ten metres into the distance. But the awesome thing about fog, or the, the, the teaching that James is showing us here, is that as surely as the fog disappears, you beauty, as, as surely as that happens, uh, our, our wealth and reputation will fade away. It's, pretty, it's a pretty strong image that... James is, is trying to convey there that you see in, in uh, verse 14 as well. So, so what's wrong with this person? In, in verse 16, the tragedy is this business person has become arrogant. As it says, as, you, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So, so why is James giving this business person such a hard time? I don't think it's in relation to the fact that they they want to make money and that they do business. Many of us here work and earn money, and and some of us, again, will be moved or have moved to other cities to do this, just like the business person in this passage. But James's criticism is their attitude towards God. So his issue is that they view their job, or they don't view their job, in the context of what God's will is 
for their lives. In other words, James is painting the picture of, of someone who doesn't think about God much at all. They're so preoccupied with, with their careers. They go through the motions. They seem to follow what everybody else is doing. That person's getting paid this much. That person's at this level. That person's got this degree. Well, I should do the same, they think. They're not prayerful. They don't seek the Lord's direction to confirm whether this is something they want to do. And they haven't realized their lives are just like fog that eventually disappears. So at the crux of it, James is criticizing somebody who has allowed God to become an afterthought in their lives. And, and I wonder now if, if you and I have a similar, similar struggle. Is God an afterthought in, in your day-to-day plans? Now, the most direct application of this passage is our careers and our jobs. But I, I think we can draw a bit more application from this passage. When I was in, in college, uh, now a few years back, uh, one of my professors, Craig Gay, described it in this way. He said, we have a tendency to be practical atheists. Right? And for those of you not familiar with the term atheist, it pretty much means no God. Or atheism means no God. Atheist is someone who lives as though there is no God. And I think we have a tendency to live our lives in a way um, that if I was to look at how I live my life, sometimes I am a practical atheist, apart from Sunday. So have a think about it. How, how, do, how does your life play out when you leave these doors uh, at Sunday at 1pm or earlier? Spending. When you make a massive spending decision, uh, when you buy a car, uh, when you're deciding the next holiday you're going to go on, or holidays, uh, when you make a decision to buy shares or invest in property, how much do you seek the Lord in that decision? Career, when, when you consider a, a job opportunity, a major life decision, how does the Lord factor into that decision? How about how you spend your time? Do you just say yes to, to everything or, or no to everything? How, how do you allocate your time between um, different friends and, and relationships, work functions, church ministry events, and relationships? How is, the, how is the Lord guiding the way you choose to spend time with people or the people you choose not to spend time uh, with? When we think about these categories, it comes down to church. Uh, how much do we spend thinking about God during the week? And, and, and if we've become accustomed to getting on by our own, and, and Joe used this word a few, a few weeks ago, self-reliance, then we're as good as a, a practical atheist. And that's, pretty, that's pretty devastating. And I think this is exactly what James is hitting on. Well, thankfully, he, he doesn't leave us in, in the dark. He gives us a, solu- a solution. So if we go back to the passage in, in verse 15, how do we combat practical atheism? Simple, apparently. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What, what, so what does this look like? To, to live a life in a posture of, according to verse 15, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. It doesn't mean for every single decision we need to make, we wait for the audible voice of God. Like, for example, if the, if the church needs to be cleaned at the back, I don't, I don't need to wait for the Lord's audible voice to tell me, okay, I should clean. There are some things that are sort of a given. But I think it's an overall perspective that 
I'm not just fitting God into my life. Instead, I'm trusting he has a plan for me, this world, for this church, for each other. And I want to be a part of that plan. And it means being attentive to God's voice. Because how, how can we follow God's will if we can't hear him and, and not know what um, he has planned for our life? And this, this applies to big or small decisions. Another um, gem that I've carried with me since I, I went to college is understanding God's calling for my life. So how do I hear from God? Well, this book I, I read a couple of years back now from, from Gordon Smith, it talks about three categories, three categories of God's calling. And it'd be really good if you could um, note these down or take a mental note because I found this so helpful in the decisions I've had to make um, over the past few years. So when we're listening to God, there is firstly the general call, which is the calling to follow Jesus. All right, so this, this is the calling to every single person in this room, every single human being on this earth to follow Jesus. We're all, we're all called to follow Jesus, to be in a relationship to him, with him, to receive his forgiveness um, that he provided on the cross. Secondly, the specific call or our vocation. So this is, this is the fun one. This is the unique calling that each of you have. Um, whether it be, is Adrian here? Oh, he's not here. Yeah, there, there goes that example. Um, Carrie, is Carrie here? All right, Carrie, there you go. Whether it's the call to be a teacher, um, like Carrie is. Um, I, I had a personal challenge with Pastor Doe to use different uh, work examples because he always uses me, like um, the finance guy, or he always uses the accountant. So um, personal challenge to, to use some other ones. Um, so people in the marketplace, people like Adrian, who, who's in supply chain, or Kerry, who's a, who's a teacher, uh, people who are grandparents, uh, Auntie Kat and my mum over there, that, that's a vocation. To be a student and working, my good man Adam, he's, well, he's supposed to be studying at the moment, or he's studying, and he also does a bit of um, shelf stacking on the weekend at Woolworths. Or the calling to be a, a pastor, for example. We can only understand our specific calling as, as Christians when we first understand our general calling, which is to be called into relationship with Jesus. So notice the order there. We, we know that we're Christians. I'm a Christian, and then I just happen to be a teacher or a grandparent or a, or a pastor. And the last one is our calling to immediate task or our immediate call. So this is the call we face in everyday life to very, very immediate duties and responsibilities. So these are the tasks that God has given us, and they're not burdens, they're tasks um, that we faithfully carry out. So anything from cleaning um, the back of the church to teaching Sunday school to preparing a meal to having people at your place. And considered together, this gives us such an awesome framework to think about the God's will in our lives. Ask yourself, regarding the general call, am, am I a Christian? Am I truly a follower of Jesus? If so, regarding my specific call, is what I'm doing in my life purposeful and aligned with what God's mission is for my life? And lastly, in the immediate call, am I faithfully carrying out the little things that God is calling me to do, as though my life is an act of worship? Equipped with this wisdom, church, uh, my prayer is that we be individuals who truly have God 
as a priority and, and front of mind in all the decisions we make. And we can wake up in the morning and declare, just like James encourages in verse 15, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Why don't you turn with me to the book of Proverbs? We're going to do a bit of page flipping. And I think these, these passages in, in Proverbs help us uh, understand, again, what God's intention is for our lives when we think about his plans. So I'm just going to go through four passages from Proverbs, and we can flick through together. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Skipping to verse 9 in chapter 16. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And lastly, chapter 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's will or purpose that prevails. So that's Proverbs 3, 5, 6, Proverbs 16, 3, and 9, and 9, Proverbs 19, 21, if you want to note those down. Let's flick back to James. He finishes off this section by saying, if anyone there knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it, it is, it's sin. And I think this is a, a massive challenge to our church because it's all well and good to, to know what God says. It's all well and good to be able to hear his voice and know what his will is for our lives. It's all well and good to know how we should be living. And it's even all well and good to feel convicted to make changes in our lives so that we you know, aren't practical atheists. But all of that is meaningless if we don't do anything about it. And this is much like the point uh, Joe made a few weeks ago around f- make, um, faith without works being dead. So my encouragement to you today, uh, as God challenges you with things to transform in your lives, don't just leave here feeling like you want to change. Um, actually go out and do something about it. Um, reflect on, on plans you've made in your life, are in the process of making or about to make, and ask yourself, is, is the Lord really guiding me in these decisions? And, and hopefully we can pray like um, Proverbs 3, 5, in all our ways we submit to him and he will make our paths straight. So that's point one, plans. Point two, possessions. Let's read the passage now. We are at the beginning of James 5. We're going to be talking about money. So strap in. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. 
Our physical possessions or our money are a demonstration of what we believe is important. And Jesus himself said in, in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart is always. So, so James is very casually moving on. He, he's had a go at the business people, and now he's going to take on rich people. And it's not just rich business person or rich person, it's rich people. So this is clearly a, a, an issue in the entire society, or there's groups of people who are struggling with their wealth. Jesus is clearly, sorry, James is clearly drawing a link, drawing a link between those who plan their lives without God and those who hoard money. The person who, who lives their life as a practical atheist or independent of God, look at how they spend their money and that gives you a pretty good sign of whether or not um, they're putting God first. And this is regardless of whether they say they're Christians or come to church every week. This isn't an outward rejection of money. Money is important. I work in finance. It's necessary. We spend a lot of time talking about money. Money, in this example, is a symptom of a deeper issue. Idolizing money is an issue, but it's a set of behaviors and attitudes that leads to idolizing money that is the the heart of the issue. And I spotted three visual cues in, in in this passage that we just read. Uh, which which show James's perspective on money, and let's go through each of them. Who likes avocados here? Anyone? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, avocados. Love hate relationship with them personally, because uh, when I was in Canada, I used to buy like the four for four, really cheap four for four, but you're never gonna get like four different levels of ripe. They're usually all the same levels of ripe. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, that, that that's sort of the situation you end up in where you, there's only so much guacamole you can make. There's only so much guacamole you can make uh, before your avocados uh, start rotting. And in the same way, um, James is challenging those who are in verse... Where is it? In verse 2, it talks about your wealth. Rotting. It's the same imagery that James is using um, to talk about money. The second image is moths eating clothes. I had to do a bit of research on this one. How gross is that? Um, another sign of how they waste money is they stockpile clothing. So the, uh, apparently, according to Google, um, the, the moths are attracted to the deep recesses of the closet, of your closet. So it... it it's, it says to me, the clothing that you've, you've bought and you haven't worn it in, in several years, um, it, it's a metaphor for things that we've spent unnecessarily on um, and we haven't even seen them for many years. And, and moths are eating away at those um, clothes because they were temporary, number one, and they weren't very useful in the first place. Verse three, gold. Now, this one was really interesting because... Look at that beautiful bar of gold. It's a very valued um, element or metal, um, I- even in today's economy. And according to Google, uh, gold is one of those um, metals that is highly uncorrosive. It doesn't, it doesn't corrode, which is why it has so much value. But in verse 3 of, of chapter 5, 
I don't think James missed his um, Year 11 science lessons. I think he's using a specific example here to say even your gold, even your gold, when viewed in the context of God's plan for your life, is going to corrode. What are the consequences of, of this? Verse 1. You rich people, you weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Guaranteed, guaranteed misery. Pretty, pretty severe. Verse 3. Corrosion. There's a graphic description here of, of their flesh being eaten like fire, as though, as though wealth has corrupted them. And then verse 4 and 6. And this is the one that, that, that convicts me the most. When money becomes an idol in your life, our lives, taken to the extreme, in, in this passage, these, these rich people are exploiting um, the people around them. Right? So they, they, start not, they start withholding the wages they're supposed to be paying to their staff and, and treating them like slaves. And so they're, they're so focused on, on wealth that... They're doing it at the expense of others. And so I, I, I don't think as, you know, in our jobs we're necessarily responsible or guilty of, of going that far. But the question is, in how you spend your money, how are you shortchanging those around you? How are you withholding um, blessing or the love of God from those around you? Verse 6, knockout blow. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. There's blood, there's literally blood on their hands because innocent people have, um, innocent people have suffered because of their hoarding. Do we, are we uncomfortably relating to, to these rich people? James even calls out the fact, this is the, this is the massive one, that they're so rich and they're so self-indulgent that they don't realize it. They're, they're living in ignorance. Verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgent. You have fattened yourselves in a day of slaughter. So they're so caught up in their money, the way they spend their money that they don't realize God's judgment is, is coming. So ask yourselves a few questions this morning, church. Are we so comfortable with our money and our possessions that we've become like the rich people in in James 5? Are we so caught up in in selfish living that we're being ignorant or even causing damage to the people around us? Or are we depriving people of the access they require to basic financial assistance? It's a real wake-up call, I think, to think about our possessions, our money, and what spending choices we make. And it's in the same way we talked about being a practical atheist and planning without, um, without God, I think the same challenge applies to our money. Let's take it a step further. further. Take a moment to, and I shared this when I, when I um, did offering a few, a few weeks ago, picture your bank statements, your credit card statements, go through every line item. Uh, you don't have to do it now, but um, you know, at some point during the week. And what does that show about you as, as a person and what you prioritize? Uh, is money an idol? Are there things that you're hoarding in your life? Is money a status symbol? Is it a source of, of pride? Is money uh, something that you use to validate your identity, um, to either make you feel secure or insecure? 
Is it something that you use to gratify um, your own desires? Or, in the case of the people in James, is it something that you don't think about at all? It's just on autopilot, and that's an issue in itself. Plans, possessions, signposts of whether we're living lives as faithful Christians. And you might be wondering now, um, I, I acknowledge this in my life, but what, what, what's the alternative? What, what am I supposed to do if um, I, want, I want to live a life where I do plan in light of God's plan for my life and I do use my possessions in a way that honors him? And we're at the third P here, patience. Point three, patience. Saying patience, I wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting that one. What, is, what does patience have to do with planning and possessions? Well, it turns out a great deal. Uh, let's turn back. Last passage of, of James we will look at this week, uh, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience and suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job, Job's perseverance and have seen that the Lord, what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. There's a lot in here. I want to acknowledge verses 10 and 11. It talks about suffering. It's covered in James 1, so I won't be focusing on it. And verse 12, which talks about committing to things, saying yes when we want to say yes and no when we mean to say no. I also don't have time to go into that today. We'll be focusing on 7 to 9 on this point 3. Why are we to be patient? Because we're waiting for Jesus to come back again. And this, this will genuinely transform our perspective towards plans and possessions. As a bit of a recap, let's consider what we believe about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That he lived a sinless and perfect life. He conducted some ministry over a period about 2,000 years ago. He died on a cross, a undeserved and painful death, the one we deserved. He rose again from the grave on the third day, and then he ascended to heaven after appearing to many of his disciples. And last but not least, he's coming back again. He's coming back again. And I think our version of the gospel message often forgets that last passage, that, that Jesus is coming back again. What, what is the significance of, of Jesus coming back again? The life of Jesus in, in the first century uh, AD, his, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, were all consistent with God's plans in the Old Testament. But many of the promises were left unfulfilled. And we know our God he does what he promises, 
And there are promises that are unfulfilled that he will fulfill when he comes again. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. You might want to turn to this. It's a, not a super long passage. And there's a number of scriptures, and I had to be really disciplined here in just picking the right one to give us an image of, of, of Jesus coming back again. Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on them that no one knows but he himself. Verse 13. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God, a.k.a. Jesus. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is a promise, church, that Jesus will, will come back again. And he's going to come back in judgment. The first time he came back, he was the suffering servant. This time he's coming back as the conquering king. Now, don't be afraid because as Christians, we know that we have received this forgiveness and we're going to be called to be with God in eternity. But it brings us back to James. Why, why does James bring up Jesus coming back again in this moment? He's just berated them about their money and their plans. Why all of a sudden is he talking about um, waiting for Jesus? Let's turn back there to James 5. Verse 7, it says, Be patient then. Verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is true. If Jesus is truly coming back again, church, it, it, it should change how we live our lives. 1 Peter 4.7 confirms this, says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. 1 Peter 4.7. And I did a bit of market research in preparing this, this sermon uh, I spoke to a couple of people. I won't name them because I forgot to ask them if this was okay to share. Um, but I will keep them anonymous. And I asked them, if you believe Jesus was coming back again soon, today, tomorrow, how would your life change? One of my respondents was very honest. He or she said, I'd feel pretty convicted about some of the situations I've been in over the last year. Where if Jesus was to come back at that specific moment, I'd feel... Oh, Am I doing something a bit sinful here? I don't, oh, I don't feel quite comfortable if he was to come back at that particular moment. Another one of my respondents said their focus would change. Uh, they would be less consumed by the busyness of their day-to-day tasks as they would view everything they do in light of Jesus coming back again. And my last respondent, he or she said, her attitude, her attitude towards work would change. <laughs> almost got there her attitude it was one of the 50 it's one of the 50 women um one said her attitude towards work would would be changed and she would more urgently seek to share the gospel with friends um in the workplace so instead of thinking about how i can make a name for myself i can start thinking about how to make plans 
that advance God's plans, knowing Christ, he's coming back. He's coming back sooner or later. Instead of thinking about how I can accumulate more money and stuff, I can think about how to be a better steward of, of the money I do have so I can better the lives of those around me. When we affirm that we believe that Jesus is coming back again, we declare we have a hope, a hope that God is coming back and that he is faithful. I know this is difficult for us to really comprehend because particularly in today's society, we're used to instant results and, and, and when we want to be gratified or satisfied, we can get it pretty quickly, whether it's any food we want to eat, um, whether it's media or entertainment, Netflix these days. So the notion of waiting for the Son of God to come back again is pretty, pretty left field. And this is why James encourages us with the imagery of the seasons. So verse 7, B. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. When I, again, when I was in, in Canada, I did not have much of that. And I arrived to witness the four seasons in full glory. I think in Australia, we, we have pretty decent seasons, but it's not as extreme um, as you might get in, in somewhere like North America. So I arrived, I was just like near where my apartment was, and it was fall or autumn, uh, just in September. And in Canada, you, you could tell the seasons are coming because they complain a lot. So <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, this is so beautiful, but winter's coming. And winter did indeed come. And that, that's actually my college there um, under a bit of snow. Um, that photo on the right, negative 30 degrees, pretty cold, pretty dark. Sun goes down at 4, uh, comes up at like 8, 8.30 in the morning. Pretty short days. Then spring comes and everyone, oh, the morale, it's, it's up. Every, every, the morale's up. Everyone's, everyone's getting their active wear ready, their athletic, um, their athletic clothing because we can start running now. It's not snowing anymore. Cherry blossoms. Didn't know they existed in Canada. Um, but there you go. And then uh, you reach the glory of summer. And oh, that's the same photo of, of my school where um, the sun's up. Like, it's actually up too much. Like, it comes up at, like, 5, and then it's up to, like, 11. Um, so you have really long days, and it's just really, really, really beautiful. So in the same way that these seasons are so predictable and they, they, they come and they go. Um, James is using the same imagery for um, waiting for Jesus to come back again. And he, he's using it in a really strong sense because he's talking to, he's using the example of a farmer. I think for us, we probably don't relate to that as much. Um, but the point is all the same. Jesus will come just like the seasons came in, in my experience in Canada. bit of a sidebar here, verse 9. And I'm going to sort of come in and reiterate some stuff Joe said last week. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. It, it's fascinating that James brings this up in this moment. And the passage is pretty clear about what the consequences are of grumbling or gossip. It says you'll be judged. Verse 9. 
And to make it a little scarier, James says, uh, by the way, the judge is standing at the door. I almost picture Jesus just, just knocking at the door saying, guys, what, what, are you, what are you doing? Why are you grumbling against each other? I'm coming soon. You've got other things to be doing and you're, you're tearing each other down. When we grumble against each other, church, um, whether it's in this church or uh, amongst our colleagues or in our families, our hearts are in the wrong place. It's a sign our hearts are in the wrong place. And I suspect many of us are guilty of this. I am very guilty of this. Um, taking swipes at people, uh, particularly in the workplace, it's fun, it's satisfying at first. Uh, you build camaraderie uh, with, with the colleagues you're gossiping with. Um, but it's sinful, and it's got to it's gotta give birth to death. Um, so, so churches, could, I think God is challenging us in this area um, where many of us are passionate about particular topics. We, want, we all have our hearts in the right place. But let's pray. Let's choose to pray for our leadership team, for each other, uh, before we think about um, grumbling uh, with one another. Put your hand up, church. If you see a need, be the one who does something about it. Church is not here for your entertainment It's not even here to meet your every desire or want. Church is here so that you can meet and encounter Jesus. And of course, because of that, he's going to meet your every need, but not the needs necessarily that you think you have, the needs that you truly need. Um, Patiently wait then, church, for the Lord's coming. Be patient with one another while you're at it. Um, This is the only thing we ought to be waiting for, and it should shape all our desires. Waiting is not passive. It's a choice. And will you choose to wait for the Lord today? I started the message this morning with a simple question. It was, what am I waiting for? Well, now we have some answers. We are actively to wait for Jesus to come back again. And when we live in a a life in a way that expects Jesus to come back again. We declare to everyone around us that God is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is Lord of all. We can't can't go on living as practical atheists. That's just not an option. Where we make plans independent of him. Instead, let's plan our our lives around the fact that he is coming back again. We, We can't go on storing up money and possessions so that we don't need to depend on the Lord anymore. Let's place our trust in the fact that Jesus is coming back again and not in our material possessions. Actively waiting for Jesus, I know it's a bit counterintuitive, is a way to make a stand that Jesus reigns, that he's coming back as the conquering king. He has given us a mission. Remember that specific call he has given us all? He's given each of us a mission to get out there, build his kingdom, spread the gospel, tell people about this great news that Jesus is Lord and he is coming back again. Be patient, church. Don't succumb to the pressures of the expectations around you and a society that is very focused on immediate and short-term results. Live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back again. My prayer um, is that we remember once again that Jesus is coming back again and we restore its position in our gospel message that we aren't selfish and we aren't indulgent but we do ask the lord this morning to change our hearts and so i'm going to ask uh, mr wong to come up and play some keys for us um, and i'm going to give an opportunity church for for people to come up and, and to respond 
to what you've heard this morning. I also ask the prayer team to come up, our faithful prayer team. There's one. Not sure if Joe's coming back, so I'll just MC it. Yeah, so church, I know it's been a, a potentially quite a challenging message, um, but I want to give the opportunity this morning to to come up and, and to to commit or to tell somebody uh, about something that God might have challenged you with this morning. So, um, in the first instance, why don't I I pray? Um, I don't think Joe's coming back, so I'll also dismiss the church. Um, but if you want to come up and be prayed for, please feel free to come up. Um, after we're done praying um, together. So let's pray. Yes, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your gospel message that you came to die for us on the cross. You rose again and then you ascended to heaven and you're coming back. And Lord, we repent when we have lived our lives in such a short-sighted way, in a temporary way. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word today that's really challenged us. And we pray, God, that in the plans that we make, Lord, you would help us to put you first and to open our eyes to see what it is you're calling us to, um, to be in relationship with you, to be in a vocation, to, to do the tasks you've put before us. Lord, we pray you would help us release the idolatry that we might um, succumb to when it comes to money. Lord, help us to see it as an instrument, not a, not, a, not a goal. Help us to see it as something we can use to bless others. And Lord, just just release any bondage in this church and in lives here this morning that see money as an idol. And lastly, Lord, we pray we would indeed every day be people who look forward to you coming back again. Jesus, and that would transform how we live our lives. It would increase our urgency. It would open our eyes to be more wary of of sin that we're committing. Lord, it would help us to love and spread your word to others. So, Father, we we thank you so much for the the word this morning. And, Lord, we now pray that you would um, take the rest of this week and, Lord, we commit it to you in, in, in an act of worship. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, feel free to find some refreshments at the back, but I would encourage you to take this opportunity to to be prayed for if you'd like to do that. See you next week.